Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Speed Levitch. When I said, uh, the bus is dead. And he said, not while I am alive. That and more. But before that, here's me singing like a chipmunk. Oh, mailing and shipping are very important, but going to the post office sure is shit ain't. That's why I love a certain little something called stamps. You can buy and print your U.S. postage using your computer and your printer, too. We use stamps.com right here at risk and tell tales about butts and poo. That's right, and right now you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK! Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Kevin McLeod behind me now. We are calling today's episode of Risk Confrontation. <laughs> That was my musical attempt, my abstract expressionistic uh, fanfare for confrontation. In a little bit, we're going to hear from one of our very favorites, the fabulous Lily B. She is on Twitter at Queen Lily B. And Lily is a real champion of something we here at Risk deeply believe in, and that is that more people of color sharing about their life experience on shows like this one is a wonderful thing. It's happening. Let's have more of it. You know where to reach me. I'm at Kevin at show.com. But before we get to Lily, I am thrilled to have for the first time someone who I have admired for years. Speed Levitch was the subject of one of the best documentaries of the 90s, The Cruise. Directed by Bennett Miller, and he's been in two Linklater, Richard Linklater projects. One was the movie Waking Life, and more recently his own Hulu series, Up to Speed. You can find him online at Speed Levitch Online. Here he is at the Risk Live show in New York City with a story we call The Cruise Awakens.
Uh, this story is uh, goes back to uh, the early 90s, 1992. I was graduating from New York University. I was majoring in a, in a very small major called dramatic writing. It was that? It was actually in between. All right. <laughs> we were a minuscule department squeezed in between the huge drama department and the huge film department. Proud playwrights. Uh, and it was in my last semester there, uh, 1992, and somebody told me, and this is one of the most confusing moments of my life, they said, um, you're going to have to get a job. <laughs> I think I'm still recovering from that moment. Like, I'm still figuring that out. So uh, the, I had to try to think about how I could possibly be constructive to society. And uh, it occurred to me, like, if I mix some of the theater and the playwriting I was doing with history, which I was interested in, and the city, which I'd been walking around in, maybe tour guiding would be the perfect nexus of all my interests and qualities. And then um, I got my first tour guide's license even before I graduated. And what put it on ice is when I finally ended up on the double-decker bus, which is you know, for sure, the most divine tourist vehicle <laughs> known to man. I mean, let's respect. Uh, to be 14 feet above every neighborhood of the city on an open deck, it's an omnipresent narratorship uh, presented in front of this epic novel. I've watched a member of every habitable continent of the world blown away by the open-air double-decker bus. After getting my tour guide's license, I was honored to be part of the Red Cavalry that was the first major double-decker bus tour company to overtake New York City tourism, run by a charismatic, enigmatic figure, an early mentor of mine in capitalism known as Harry Grant. Harry Grant, certainly a stage name for an Iraqi Jew who had made a fortune in Israel, I'm still not sure how. And as a millionaire, had an interest in classic cars, had his own classic car collection. And that led him to an interest in antique double-decker buses. The poor London city buses, that already many of them had a million miles on them, thought they were finally semi-retired. Brought out of retirement by Harry Grant, $10,000 at a time, shipped across the ocean to become part of the Red Cavalry, the first double-decker fleet to overtake New York City tourism. Gray Line had had a 75-year monopoly uh, through concierges and a reservation system. Harry Grant <laughs> single-handedly turned New York tourism upside down in one summer by inventing improvisational tourism. The first summer Apple Tours existed, which was my first summer as a double-decker guide, we sucked a half a million people off the sidewalks. We seduced a half a million Europeans, South Americans, off the sidewalks, improvisationally onto those buses. Those who really ran the company were the ticket sellers. Uh, Harry Grant would hire his ticket sellers if they could sell him a watch, because they were the guys that sold watches at the Rockefeller Center. Uh, many of them from the Ivory Coast in Africa. Those guys spoke six or seven languages fluently, and you would watch them just seduce generations of Argentinians, Italians, French onto the buses. 
And the bus would sometimes park for an extra 10 minutes in Times Square for no secular or traffic reason in sight, but just because Muhammad was feeling it. <laughs> he really ran the company. Harry Grant, probably 2,000 years old, emanating as a precise personification from the public markets of the Persian Empire. <laughs> At our meetings in the morning, this is what he would sound like. Bullshit! Bullshit! I am in Harlem. You are in Chinatown. You say on the radio, Mr. Grant, the door don't close. What am I supposed to do? I'm in Harlem. You're in Chinatown. Mr. Grant's form of uh, dispatching was intense. Uh, you'd often hear him on the radio. And uh, his main dispatcher was named Lawrence, but he, he couldn't pronounce those syllables. So he, he, the best he came up with was Alonza. And all day you'd hear like, Alonza, Alonza, come in. Mr. Grant was definitely having a great time, usually. Always wore a Hawaiian shirt and sandals. Ilanza, I want a bus because the buses would fly around like vultures and just look for crowds to suck off the sidewalks. Ilanza, I want a bus on 5-3 Street between 5 and 6th Avenue. There is a large crowds and people. And Ilanza would come back and say, well, uh, Mr. Grant, 53rd Street between 5th and 6th Avenue. I think that's the Museum of Modern Art, sir. And the, that line is probably for the Picasso exhibit that's going on right now. What a museum! People want to have fun. They're on vacation. There's crowds and lines. 53 Street between 5 and 6th Avenue. What a bus! Uh, so one day, a new driver showed up named Fred. He had long hair, he wore a Leonard Skinner shirt. He seemed super qualified from Apple Tour's point of view. <laughs> and uh, this is right at that time where Mr. Grant had realized he could make money by turning the buses into advertising. So this particular double-decker bus we were on that day had a huge MetLife advertisement. So there was a big Snoopy and Charlie Brown on either side of the fuselage, if you will, as we moved out into the city. Uh, and this was one of those buses where Mr. Grant had kind of improvised his own registration sticker. It would really piss him off when the buses would arrive and get rejected by Consumer Affairs. Uh, he spent so much money transporting them. And Fred got into a scrape on the first loop in front of the United Nations building. Of course, uh, I was already used to it. I mean, a lot of my job was tap dancing to keep refunds from happening. The very first day I worked for Apple Tours, the bus broke down right in front of the United Nations. And uh, there were 60 international people pissed off with me instantly. Some of them missing matinees or missing airplanes. And uh, I was like, you know, uh, Corbusier was a very important architect to the look of the UN today. And on his first day in New York, he described New York as, quote, a magnificent catastrophe. You know, trying to keep it fun. <laughs> and like, they would be pissed off, like we're stuck on a bus, like a weird island in the middle of First Avenue, and I'd be like, you know, this is Turtle Bay. So much of Manhattan would not be possible without incredible drainage. 
Incredible drainage is making this all possible. Finally, Mr. Grant pulled up. He drove a red and yellow Jeep, same colors as the double-decker buses, always flying the Apple Tour flag. And he says, what's wrong? And I said, uh, the bus is dead. And he said, not while I am alive. Then he went under the hood and regurgitated the bus. In any case, that day, Fred got into the scrape with his taxi driver, and it was very minor. It was very small. He scratched... Fred scratched the decal sticker on the taxi driver's front door. Now, of course, I know that's a big deal for the taxi driver because he's got to go back to his own set of vultures, uh, the taxi driver's dispatchers that will charge him for that scratch on the decal at door. And he was freaking out. Fred, for whatever reason, freaked out even further and decided to turn it into a cannonball run. <laughs> Part four, I believe, uh, although I've lost count. Uh, and uh, sure enough, although we're driving a huge Snoopy Charlie Brown double-decker bus, Fred believes he can lose this cab driver in the traffic. It just kind of erase the entire problem the same way Burt Reynolds would have done it. And I'm just holding on for dear life, and there's just a few passengers on board. So I'm like, oh, this building is exhibiting well the zoning law of 1916. Uh, the buildings will fall backwards as they rise. This way the sunlight can hit the middle of the boulevard. Whether uh, buildings of New York look like wedding cakes or monoliths from the movie 2001, they're all dancing to the same bebop jazz of the early zoning law of 1916. <laughs> and Fred is zooming around a corner and treating the bus like it's a Corvette. Eventually we end up somehow still alive in front of the Plaza Hotel. And the taxi driver is right there, still pissed off and freaked out. And maybe the only time I ever was happy to see Harry Grant, he emanated with his Hawaiian shirt and his sandals. He was standing at the Plaza Hotel stop. He saw the chaos and he was like, what, what is this bullshit, what, what the hell? And the taxi driver points to the scratch on the sticker and he was like, how awful it is. Like, bullshit, whatever. And like, Harry Grant hands him $200 in cash. Have a good day, whatever. Get a good life. <laughs> and enjoy life, please. Uh, and then he turns to uh, Fred, uh, the, the long-haired, Leonard skin driver, and it's like, have his shirt. And we'd, we'd had a long talk about different philosophies and the fact that I like to write. And Fred was a sensitive guy, but he turned the double-decker loop into a cannonball run. And... And sure enough, Mr. Grant turned to him and said, uh, I, I told you never to put the clutch like this. The, the bus doesn't like it when you put the clutch like this. And when he says that, the back seat of the downstairs area starts to smoke. Well, that's where the engine is. Uh, and it starts to smoke really fast. And it starts to fill up the whole inner cabin. And then Mr. Grant turns to me and he says, um, Get me the uh, fire... Um, what do you call that? Uh, the fire engine, the, the fire uh, extinguisher thing. And I give him the little fire hydrant and Mr. Grant spritzes the back seat and it gets worse. And there's a couple of elderly ladies from Britain and I'm literally helping them off the bus because we're like threatened with smoke inhalation. We get out onto the sidewalk, Fifth Avenue and 59th Street, the top of the Snoopy Charlie Brown bus is in flames. <laughs> Being eaten alive by fire. It's 59th and 5th Avenue, so in five seconds, there's five fire engines from all directions. 
and they're totally on top of it. My Apple Tour shirt is being uh, laminated with a new layer of grime and soot. And when the smoke clears, everybody's gone. Mr. Grant, Ilanza, Fred. I'm the only representative of the company as the fire chief comes over to me and goes, is this your bus? It's a New York situation. Eventually, I got towed back to the parking lot along with the carcass of the Snoopy Charlie Brown bus. Uh, Fred was walking out of the parking lot and he turned to me and says, oh yeah, I got, I got fired. I ain't no driver for the Apple Tours no more. And I said, Fred, sorry, it didn't work out. And Fred says, oh, you know what? It doesn't matter, I've got AIDS. Uh, I'm dying. So I don't care, I don't get... I don't get caught up with these fucking trivialities. And then he says to me, keep writing, keep writing. And uh, it was a mixed feeling because I felt terrible about Fred and all that. But I was glad he was no longer a driver for the Red Cavalry. Life went on and in the tours that I do today, Fred is definitely an ingredient. Uh, He's a reminder to me at all times that we should never get too hooked into a preconceived notion of what the tour should be. Uh, for Fred represented that a double-decker loop can turn into Apocalypse Now Redux if you really wanted to. Life went on. Eventually, I was traded for two first-round draft choices to Greyline when they started their double-decker company, and uh, the first day that I was in Times Square with my new Greyline uniform, Mr. Grant, still the great adversary of Greyline, came over to me, and he's like, um, what? What? I mean, I'd worked for him for two and a half years. He's like, what? Why? What happened? You go to the other side. Why? And I said, Mr. Grant, absolutely nothing personal. I love the Red Cavalry. I love you Cossacks. But uh, Greyline is paying $9 an hour. You did and still do pay $7 an hour. To which Mr. Grant said, $9 an hour? Do you think you can get me in? <laughs> Thank you. May I restate, recapitulate, and generally regurgitate when you are sitting in the middle of midtown Manhattan, you are sitting amongst the 20th century invention. A city that grew up at an explosion, as an explosion, it is an explosion. An experiment, a system of test tubes gurgling, boiling out of control, radioactive atoms swirling. Civilization has never looked like this before. This is ludicrousness, and this cannot last. The new Ann Taylor store on the right. Growing up in the 80s, I used to love taking public transportation with my mom and my grandma. They used to take us on errands, all of us. When I say us, me, my cousins, whoever was around. And we'd go run errands with my mom or my grandma 
for me it was really exciting and for my siblings too because we got to explore the world like we didn't leave our neighborhood very often so when we did leave we got to see different parts of the city and people and Taking the L was like live action cartoons because graffiti artists would go into the tunnels and paint Fred Flintstone and then Bart Simpson, whoever, and through these tunnels and you got to just watch the train through the windows and everything was about watching and taking everything in and people watching was probably one of my favorite things to do. I got to see all these different people that obviously didn't live in my neighborhood, right? So I got to wonder where they came from and what neighborhoods they lived in who their families were. It was one of these times like hanging on an errand with my mom on the bus that I noticed I was there were two women sitting across from me and my mom on the back of the bus with my siblings. It was my brother, my sister and I and my two cousins. Now, I'm looking through these people cuz sometimes you just get lost in a daze and I'm kind of lost in a daze looking out the window through these two women and just taking in the streets when something catches my ear. You see, I have to explain to everyone who doesn't know Lily B that I'm Afro-Mexicana. I'm Afro-Mexicana, Afro-Mexican. And my mom looks like a black woman. She had the kinky little fro, skin very, very dark. Some people said she looked like Whoopi Goldberg, no joke. Like, real talk, my mom looks like a black woman. And so when I heard what these women said it caught my ear because I look around the bus and my mom is the only person that would match this description and they used the word mayate now mayate is a Spanish word it's a term used in Spanish culture to mean like the, the n-word and that is when I stopped like got right out of my gaze and started paying attention to these two women conversation they were Spanish I didn't know if they were Mexican Puerto Rican Cuban but there was two Spanish women now talking about my mother and I know it's my mother because I'm listening and one woman says to the other mira esta mujer con todos estos niños and the other woman says a la mejor ni son de to del mismo papá which translated is look at this woman with all these children and the other woman says they're probably not even from the same father and then they get to talking about us now they're looking at us individually the five of us and they're pointing out the differences like yes look at this mira la nariz de esta y los ojos de él están más claritos look at the nose on this one and look at the eyes on this one they're a lot more fair and they're talking about my mother and us and I know my mom is can hear if I can see this she can see this we're sitting right next to each other so I start pulling her shirt to like let her know because you don't make a scene you know this is the 80s you don't get up and point people out or call people out I just pull her shirt to let her know like listen look it if you're not paying attention and through her teeth she says cállate losico which translates to shut the fuck up and at that moment that she says that, I felt like, why? Like, because I couldn't say but. There's no way that I could be like, but they're talking about. No, because she just slapped me. She just knocked me the fuck out right there on the bus. And I would have no story to tell. But she just tells me to shut up. And I'm looking at these women. I'm thinking my mom is weak. And I'm going on listening to these women. And I'm so disappointed in my mom at that moment. I'm so disappointed that she's not saying something, that she's letting these women just talk about us. And we're on the bus for a few more minutes and our stop is coming up. So she tells us to get up. And so we ring the bell thinking, you know, that it's our stop because we're always excited to ring that bell on these errands. She has us stand in a little row by the back door. And for good reason, she has us go in front because at that moment she turns around to these women. 
in her sweetest but bitchiest voice, because I know this voice, right? She says, for your information, por su información, estos tres son mis hijos y los tuve con un solo hombre. Y estos dos son mis sobrinos que también son de los mismos padres. Which translates to, for your information, these three are my children and I had them with one man. And these two are my nephew and niece, who are also by the same parents. So antes de hablar, and she starts to tell these women that before they start to talk, antes de comenzar a hablar, one chincheras, and, and she starts saying words that in Spanish I never heard my mom say to anyone ever, which is things like bonchincheras, chismosas, viejas bonchincheras, like gossipy bitches is basically what she was calling them. And the look on these women's faces when they realized that, hey, she spoke fucking Spanish. This black woman spoke Spanish. <laughs> Holy shit. And what she had to say with them, they just sit there in their shame. They couldn't even say sorry because she didn't even give them a chance to. You guys, she just said what she had to say. This is who I am. This is why you'll respect me. And she got off that bus. And the people in the back left snickering and looking at these women. And we just got off the bus. And the minute my foot like touched the curb it was like in a tv show a commercial as you see with the little kid just happy just yeah one fist in the air yeah mom i was so proud of my mom i was so happy to like she had done something that she told me to shut the fuck up for good reason that she had a plan and it was beautiful and i was proud and i had to got to explain it to my cousins and his brother and sister who had been completely oblivious to it and i was so excited that i was going to tell everyone and she even then she was just like no this is not something you go tell. Like, this is no es para eso, ni para eso, which is for what, basically. And I like to think that I get that from my mother. I like to think that I do what I do and I am who I am, Lily B, because I want people to know, like, I, like my mother did that day, like, this is who I am and this is why you'll respect me. But unlike my mother. <laughs> I want the whole fucking world to know why. This is Risk. Lovely new song from astronauts called In My Direction. Of course, we just heard Lily B, who you can always find on Twitter at Queen Lily B with one E, like let it be it. <laughs> Remember that story by Kenny DeForest? I do. And before that, we heard a little interstitial from a clip from that movie, The Cruise, which is about that period in Speed Levitch's life where he was running those tours on those buses. You gotta see that movie, it's The Cruise. We call the interstitial ludicrous unlasting. 
Our final story today comes to us from the show that we recently did in Seattle. This is a writer. She is Her latest book is Starbird Murphy and the World Outside. Karen Finneyfrock has uh, written novels, poems. She teaches as well. Here she is now at the Risk Live show in Seattle with a story we call 37 Rings. In 2005, I was broke, I was living in my parents' garage, and I was so sad that I could barely get out of bed. The reason that I was so sad is that my sister had just died. She died at a young age, she died at 36. She died of heart failure for reasons that we will never understand, and she and I were very close. Before that time, I had been living in Seattle. I was a poet and arts organizer and uh, really just having a pretty great life of a young person living in the city. But when my sister got sick, I sold everything and I moved back to the small East Coast town where I grew up and I began this odyssey of grief. So for two years, I really only left the house to go to work. I got a job at the local food co-op and I would occasionally go to the gym. And then other than that, I started writing this novel in secret. I had never written a novel or had any reason to believe I could write one, but it was just my way of escaping from my daily reality into another world. I think what made this time especially difficult is that I was single. So I was single and I didn't have anyone to, you know, share my grief to hold me and love me and touch me and uh, make me feel taken care of. And I was 33, and, you know, I still had the idea that maybe I would like to get married and possibly have a family, but I really felt like uh, the math didn't quite add up. Like, how many years would it take me to meet someone and then decide to get married and then decide to start having a family? And it seemed like the window was closing. It wasn't such a big deal when I was in Seattle where people tend to stay single later in life, but I was in this small town where I grew up where people get married in their 20s, have kids, and if somebody is still single by the time they're 33, they are single for a reason. (laughs) Despite all this, um, when I turned 34, a girlfriend from work said, hey, it's your birthday, come out with me, let's go to the bar and have a drink. And so I went, and that night, I met a man at the bar. And uh, he was actually someone I had known. He and I worked together when we were younger at a bagel shop. And he said, I have to confess that I always had a crush on you back then. And I liked him too. And he said, I want to be straight up with you. I am going through a divorce. I have two small kids. And I'm actually at this bar on a date with another woman. but he said, I wish that I was here with you. And I was hooked. I said yes um, when he asked me out on a date, and uh, we went out and uh, we started dating. And it was wonderful. When I was with him, all of my grief seemed to evaporate. Uh, There were a few reasons for that. The first one is he was really charismatic, one of those people that everyone flocks to be around, very funny and generous and interesting. 
Um, also, he recognized me as an artist. He was a musician, and I confessed to him that I was secretly writing this novel, and he thought that it was brilliant and that I was brilliant, and of course people would want to read it, and what a great idea. And um, finally, his problems uh, just seemed a lot more interesting than mine. You know, like, my problem was grief. There was no solution for my problem except for time. But um, he had problems like uh, dealing with the lawyers about the divorce and setting up the house to be a single dad and, you know, dealing with raising two small kids and fighting with his ex, which all sounded really interesting to me. So we were dating, and it was great, except when it wasn't. Like, uh, sometimes I would call him, and he wouldn't call me back for a couple of days. Or he would often break plans at the last minute, or sometimes he would make plans at the last minute. Like, I know it's 10 o'clock at night, but I just have to see you. So one night, when he broke our plans at the last minute, my girlfriend called and said, oh, well, you're free. Come get a drink with me at the bar. So we went, and he was there. He was there on a bar stool, and he was next to the woman that he had been with at the bar that first night. So, of course, I confronted him. Clearly, when I confronted him, I realized he was a few drinks into his night. And um, he was, uh, you know, a little bit uh, belligerent, even. Sort of like, Why? you know, I told you I just I couldn't do it tonight. I've got a lot going on. I just came down here to, you know, forget about my troubles and have a few drinks. And... Why are you acting this way? Oh, it's making me feel a little bit like my ex-wife used to act. And um, it wasn't a good scene, so I went home. And we didn't talk for a few days. And then my phone rang at 1 a.m., and it was him. So I saw his name, and I was just ready to let him have it. How could you call me in the middle of the night after what happened to the bar? You know, what are you doing? And he said, what bar? And I said at the bar that I saw you at a few nights ago when you were with the other woman, and he said, I saw you at the bar. And it became clear to me pretty quickly that he didn't remember seeing me at the bar because he wasn't just a little bit drunk, he was actually blackout drunk. And in fact, he was getting blackout drunk a lot because he was a high-functioning alcoholic. I didn't have a lot of experience with alcoholism. I come from Protestant teetotaling parents and grandparents, so I didn't have any alcoholics in my family. I went out drinking with my friends in Seattle, but we went out and drank and had a good time, and this was something very different from that. And I found out something else that night on the phone when he said, I tried to kill myself tonight. Would you please come over? And I did. I got up and I got dressed and I went to his house. And when I got there, um, the coffee table was littered with empty beer cans. And there was some kind of pill bottle that was empty. And there was a bunch of saran wrap that he had wrapped around his face to try and cut off his breathing. And I had never seen anything like that before. And I tried to offer to get him help. And he refused any kind of help, but begged me to stay with him. And I did. I was still reeling from the death of my sister, and the idea of this man that I had come to care about so much dying was more than I could handle. So at this point, you might be thinking, how sad, how horribly depressing. But I really cannot stress enough how this 
suicidal, high-functioning alcoholic was really fun to be around. (laughs) He was just witty and interesting, and he seemed to wrestle with life in this way that was different from other people. You know, the whole time we were together, I never saw him sort of, like, sit around watching TV or playing video games. He was always out engaging with life, and I really liked it. I kept dating him, and then one night um, we went to this dinner party, and he got drunk and ended up insisting on driving home, and it was really just the final straw for me. You know, I, I couldn't reconcile the idea of him being out there putting other people's lives at risk by drunk driving, and I thought, this is it. You know, this is my wall. So I called him the next day, and I said, I have to talk to you. I'm coming over. And I got there, and he said, I'm starving. You know, just come with me to this Mexican restaurant, and we'll talk there. So we went to the restaurant, ordered some food, and he got us a couple of margaritas. And I just laid it all out. I gave him the laundry list of the problems between us and really what I thought were maybe some big problems for him. And he said, you're right. I know. Um, I'm bad news. You need to get away from me. It's just the divorce. You know, I can't control it. And uh, you've got such a bright future. You have so much to live for. Let's talk about you. How's your novel going? Um, How's your heart doing? You know, how are you dealing with the loss of your sister? And I started to talk about me, and I started to feel so much better, and I started to remember all of the things that I really liked about him, and that's when he said, just give me one more chance. And I said yes. So we left the restaurant and uh, started walking towards his house, and we made it about two blocks, and he said, oh, I forgot my wallet at the restaurant. I'll be right back. Wait here. And he turned around and ran. He ran back in the direction of the restaurant, but not exactly. He ran about a block toward the restaurant, and then he turned and ran down the alley. And I thought, he must know a shortcut. Maybe he's going to the back door. This is his neighborhood. So I waited for a little while until it felt kind of weird to be waiting. And then I walked back to the restaurant, and it turns out that um, they said that he had never come back looking for any wallet, and there wasn't a wallet left there anyway. So I thought... What's going on? Did he decide to sneak into a bar and try and get a drink really quickly without me knowing about it? So I went to the bar where we had met, and they hadn't seen him all night. I went to a couple of other bars in the neighborhood, and they hadn't seen him either. And then I walked back to his house. And when I got there, that woman's car was parked outside. I couldn't believe it. Even after everything we had been through, I was shocked. I walked right up to the front steps and I rang his doorbell. You're gonna talk to me right now. I can't believe you just left me standing out there. I waited and no one answered the door. So I rang it again. I could look upstairs and see that the bedroom light was on. Clearly someone was home. I rang the doorbell again. I could hear that the doorbell was not broken. It sounded like ding dong every time I rang it, and I rang it again. And I got 
angrier the longer I stood on the porch waiting. I can't believe he thinks he's just going to ignore me. Does he think I'm going to stop ringing and go away? I rang again. What are they doing in there? Are they both inside together listening to me ring and they're going to ignore me? I rang it again. Are they having sex? Are they having sex and listening to me ring the bell? I rang it again. By the time I got to 10 rings, it was blind rage. I couldn't believe that a man had actually run away from me on the street. He had just asked for another chance. I rang it again. I rang it faster. I kept ringing that bell until I got to 20 rings. And then something changed. His door no longer just seemed like the door to his house. His door became the door to a cold, unfeeling universe. I rang it again. Is there anyone out there listening? I rang it again. Does God exist? I rang it again. Do our human trials and tribulations amount to anything? Is anybody out there listening to us? By the time I got to the 37th ring, I sat down on the steps and I wept. I found out later that he was in the house, but he didn't hear the doorbell ringing because he was passed out drunk. And I found out that that woman was in the house too, and she was curled up in the corner, terrified because someone wouldn't stop ringing the bell. (laughs) So after that, I got into therapy. (laughs) And uh, I learned about codependency. I found out about how when one person in a relationship has an addiction to some sort of substance, that the other person in the relationship can also begin to act like an addict. And I realized all the ways that I had kept going back to this relationship that was clearly bad for me and how I was also playing out an addiction. And I realized that the thing I really wasn't facing in my life was that my life wasn't working at home in this small town. And I finally came to terms with the fact that I needed to move back to Seattle. And I did move back to Seattle. And I started contacting literary agents. And my first novel came out in 2012, published by Viking Penguin. And when I met my boyfriend and we agreed on our first date, I suggested that we meet at a bar. And he said, you know, actually, I don't really like to drink that much. And these days, when I ring your doorbell and you don't answer, I go away. I haven't got a clue One thing you know where I'm going There won't be another you And I don't mean that I found another man And I don't mean that I'll fall in love
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is the Wild Reads behind me now. And Risk is next appearing in Salt Lake City on December 12th. Come on out, Salt Lake City. Then on the 17th, we're in New York again. And on the 19th, back in L.A. In January, we will be showing up in San Francisco. That'll be round about the 15th or 16th. We haven't nailed that down yet. We're also going to be in Nashville in January. The theme that night is humiliating, and we are definitely taking pitches for that. So, Nashville folks, pitch me at Kevin at risk-show.com. The theme is humiliating. And let's see, then we're at the Bell House. We make our big Bell House debut in Brooklyn on January 27th. After that, in February, we're going to be hitting Austin, Dallas, and Houston. Austin, the theme is confused. Dallas, the theme is guilty. Houston, the theme is hostile. Please pitch me at Kevin at Ristashow.com. And never forget that there is uh, lots to find in our shop at risk-show.com. Lots of t-shirts and mugs and totes, all that kind of stuff. Not to mention our wonderful education opportunities at thestorystudio.org. There's our online video lecture courses that you can take in your own time. There's the one-on-one training that I do over Skype. And there's all the workshops that we do in New York, in Minneapolis, in Los Angeles, as well as, you know, the corporate workshops that we do all over the world. So... Anyone can learn a lot more about storytelling at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I'm chasing the winds. I'm leaning on winds and I'm learning a thing or two.